This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We are going to jump right into it. We are discussing the second year after the Prophet's death. We are going to talk about how the Ridda Wars are now over and the Muslims are united into one group under the leadership of Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr has now ordered Khalid ibn Walid to leave Yamama and begin the invasion of Persia. If you want to know more information, the show notes to this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Persia. Okay, so without any more waiting, let's go ahead and get into it. Here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. Let's begin by recapping where we are at this point of time in the history of Islam. Barely a year before the time that this episode takes place in Islamic history, the Prophet has died. And after his death, most of the Arabian tribes that were affiliated with him broke their allegiance with Medina and thereby also with Abu Bakr, who was chosen as the successor to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Abu Bakr and his primary general, Khalid ibn Walid, led a successful campaign to defeat the various rebel tribes. And this campaign, these campaigns were known as the Wars of Apostasy or the Wars of Ridda. Within a year of the onset of the Wars of Ridda, Arabia was united. Abu Bakr and Khalid ibn Walid were victorious. At this time, there also existed two major empires flanking the Arabian Peninsula. These were the Persian and the Byzantine empires, and we're going to talk about them a little bit just so you can get to know them a little bit better. You have the Persians to the northeast of Arabia and the Byzantines to the northwest of Arabia. Let's first talk about the Persians. Now, Persian culture and power, it goes very, very, very far back, all the way into biblical times and even before that, even before Cyrus the Great. And if you remember from season one of the Islamic History podcast, we postulated and theorized that the Islamic figure known as Dhul Qarnayn may have very well actually been Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great was one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest Persian emperor there was. If you would like to know more about the story of Cyrus the Great and Tholkarnain, you can listen to the podcast on that topic at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Gog and Magog. Now, this area, this vast area that we're going to collectively call the Persian Empire, or collectively call Persia, in fact, 
was really much larger than modern day, quote unquote, Iran or Persia. It stretched very, very far beyond that. At one point in time, it had been conquered by Alexander the Great, the uh, famous Greek general and king. But after his conquest of Persia, this area went through several dynastic changes and the, the land that it covered altered and shifted over the centuries. So by the time we get to Prophet Muhammad Wasallam time, the final dynasty in control is called the Sassanid dynasty. And even though we may call this area the Persian Empire, it is more correctly, more appropriately called the Sassanid Empire. This Sassanid Empire, this Sassanid dynasty would be the last non-Muslim Persian dynasty. It came into power about 400 years before Prophet Muhammad's birth. And by the time Prophet Muhammad had made the hijrah or the migration to Medina, the Sassanid Empire was going through some very serious political turmoil and it had become very, very weak. Remember, it had existed the dynasty in itself had existed for over 400 years by the time the prophet was even born. The emperor of Persia, by the time Prophet Muhammad was in Medina, was a man named Khosrow II. And he came into power when his supporters killed his father, the previous emperor. Six years into the migration of the Muslims to Medina, the Prophet ﷺ had made a treaty with the pagan Quraysh, ceasing warfare and violence for a couple of years. For th During this period after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, when the Muslims didn't have to worry about fighting and violence and warfare, they were able to focus on spreading Islam through more peaceful means. And one of the means that Prophet Muhammad took to invite others to Islam was to send letters, diplomatic letters to the different rulers and kings and chieftains in the area. And he sent one to Khosrow II of the Persian Empire, or more appropriately, the Sassanid Empire. When Khosrow received the letter, however, he tore it up into many little pieces. And when the Prophet Muhammad heard about this, he predicted that Khosrow's empire would be torn up in a similar fashion. Khosrow II then ordered his vassal in Yemen to attack Medina, capture and execute Prophet Muhammad Yemen is far away from Persia, it's on the, on the southwestern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, whereas Persia is to the northeast of Arabia. But this uh, vassal state of Yemen, even though it was independent in, in, a, in a way, it was still under the command and influence of the Persian Empire. And so Khosrow ordered his vassal to attack Medina. The ruler of Yemen traveled to Medina to meet Prophet Muhammad and he eventually accepted Islam. And rather than attack Medina, he actually turned Yemen over to the Prophet So that's how Islam came to Yemen. And so this plan by Khosrow to invade Medina actually backfired on him. He wound up losing territory rather than gaining anything at all. Not too long after this foolish attempt by Khosrow to attack Medina, 
Khosro was overthrown and executed by his son, Kavad. Okay, now we're about to get into some serious political turmoil here. Okay, I'm going to go through the many different rulers and and power players in this period of political turmoil in the Persian Empire, uh, just so you can get an idea of how weak and stressed they were by the time Khalid ibn Walid began to make his move. It may be kind of confusing because there's lots of names and lots of killing, but just try to follow along as best as you can. Okay, so Khosrow II, the guy who tore up the prophet's letter, he was overthrown and executed by his son Kavad. Kavad died six months later from the plague, and he was succeeded by his seven-year-old son, Ardashir III. After this transition, several parts of the Sassanid Empire rebelled against the ruling family, and a combined force marched on the capital of Tesiphon, led by a rebel king named Shahrabaz. Shahrabaz conquered the capital, executed the seven-year-old emperor Ardashir, and Shahrabaz made himself the emperor of the Sassanid Empire. However, he was assassinated just 40 days later. Ardashir, that's a seven-year-old boy, his sister Boran was then made empress, the ruler of the empire. But after one year, she was deposed by Shahrabaz, that's the rebel king. He was She was deposed by Shahrabaz's son, a guy named Shapur. Shapur didn't last very long there because he was killed a few days later. And then another daughter of Khosro, a, a lady named Azarmidokht, she became the ruler. But Azarmidokht, she had a prime minister who wanted to marry her, most likely because he wanted to take over the kingdom or the empire for himself. The young lady, the young empress, Azarmedok, was too afraid to refuse him because she figured she refused him, he would have her killed. So instead, she had her prime minister killed. Unfortunately, someone found out about the plot, and then she was in turn killed by her prime minister's son. And then her sister, Boran, the previous empress, came back into power. Poor Baran, however, was assassinated in her bed barely a year later. And finally, the rulership fell to a young boy named Yezdujir, who was one of the grandsons of Khosro, and he was only eight years old at the time. This young man, this young boy named Yezdujir, he would be a teenager, only a teenager, when Khalid ibn Walid began the conquest of Persia. Yezdajir would be the last Persian emperor. Now let's shift over to the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire is more appropriately called the Roman Empire because that's what it began as. It began as the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, of course, existed centuries before Prophet Muhammad even existed before Isa, Prophet Jesus. And during his heyday, the Roman Empire covered almost all of Europe, all of Northern Africa, Asia Minor, which is Turkey and likes, the Balkans, Southern Europe, the Mediterranean area, the Levant, which is uh, the Northern Arabian Peninsula part, which is like Jordan, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, areas like that, and also Egypt. But however, with so much territory and 
there were several civil wars and upheavals and fighting from within the empire over so many centuries. It was decided to split this huge empire into two regions. This happened in 285 CE, one region in the east, one region in the west, each of them with their own emperor. And they would hope that this would cease fighting between the two and also make this huge land mass, this huge territory easier to govern. In reality, very often these two uh, these two regions wound up fighting each other. The eastern capital of the Roman Empire was based in Constantinople, which is now modern day Istanbul. And the western capital was based in Rome, but later on it shifted into Milan, but still it was based in Italy. After the Roman Empire was split into two halves in 285, there were a few men who were able to rule the entire empire as one united territory. But for the most part, it was usually split between two rulers after 285 CE. However, one of the men who were able to, who was able to rule the entire empire was Emperor Constantine. Emperor Constantine eventually converted to Christianity. And soon after that, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And this entire territory, in a very short order of time, converted to Christianity. And now you know how Christianity came to Europe. Now, after this, however, the two regions split apart once again after Constantine's death. And from this point forward, the Eastern Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire prospered while the Western Roman Empire floundered. It was continuously attacked, had plagues. So many problems. Eventually, it just floundered and the Western Empire came to an end with the death of their final emperor, Romulus Augustulus, in the year 476 CE, roughly 200 years before Prophet Muhammad was born. However, the Eastern Roman Empire continued for another thousand years. It continued for another thousand years and wouldn't actually cease existing until their capital, Constantinople, was conquered by the Ottoman Empire. However, during this time that we're speaking about, the life of Prophet Muhammad and then Abu Bakr, this empire, even though this Eastern Roman Empire, even though the city of Rome was not within its territory, it was still called Rome. Because remember, it was initially part of the original Roman Empire. It was half of the Roman Empire. And that is why even in the Quran, it is called Rome. Everybody called it Rome at that time. The word Byzantine, I may use the word Byzantine sometimes, that is a modern term. Nobody who lived in the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire at that time, called themselves Byzantinians or Byzantines. They called themselves Roman. That is why it's also called Rome in the Quran as well. So by the time Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was sending his diplomatic letters from Medina after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire was ruled by a man named Emperor Heraclius. And this Eastern Roman Empire also included the area of Levant, that 
northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. The prophet the prophet sent emissaries to Heraclius, and for the most part, they were treated kindly by Heraclius. He was not as rude as Khosrow II from Persia was. However, some of the prophet's emissaries were killed by Arab tribes who were affiliated with the Roman Empire, and this did lead to some early battles between the Muslims and the Romans. If you remember, we spoke about this in the last episode, just before the wars of Rudda began, the Prophet has sent Usama ibn Zayd with an army to attack Syria, but then he was he came back after the Prophet's death, but then Abu Bakr sent him back out again to attack Syria. This was in retaliation for some Muslim emissaries killed by some of the Arab tribes who were affiliated with the Roman Empire. But the story of Heraclius himself and how he treated the emissaries is a very beautiful story. He questions the Sahaba who comes to him with his information about many different uh, facets of the prophet's character and life, trying to ascertain if the prophet was truly a prophet. The responses are very good, and I strongly encourage you to find the hadith and look at it. If you don't know where it is, it is located in Sahih Bukhari. There will be a link to that hadith at the show notes for this episode. Just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Persia. Islamic learningmaterials.com slash Persia, you'll find a link to that hadith telling the story of how Heraclius treated these emissaries from Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Okay, so now you have been caught up on the state of both the Byzantine and the Persian Empire at the time of the close of the Wars of Apostasy, at the close of the Rutta Wars. But let's go back to the Rutta Wars just a little bit and cover some territory that will lead into the Muslim invasion of Persia. While the Ridda Wars were still going on, Abu Bakr sent one of uh, prophet, the Prophet's companions, a man named Muthanna ibn Haritha, to Iraq to raid some of the uh, Persian border towns that bordered along the Muslim territory. The reason why he did this was to discourage the Persians from attacking the Muslims while Abu Bakr was distracted in trying to put down the rebellion of the apostates. After the wars of Rudda were over and after the uh, fight against Musaylam al-Kadhab in Yamama had been done, Abu Bakr had sent another army out to the southern Iraq, what we would call southern Iraq today. Southern Iraq was part of the Persian Empire at this time. Then he ordered Khalid ibn Walid, fresh off of the battle uh, at Yamama against Musaylam al-Kadhab, he ordered Khalid ibn Walid to leave Yamama with an army and head for Iraq also. So eventually these two armies met in a town called Ubala and Khalid ibn Walid took over the combined force. Now, Khalid ibn Walid had received the command from Abu Bakr to begin the invasion of Persia. Khalid's primary objective was to capture the city of Hira, which was an important Persian city halfway up the Euphrates River. And just a quick geographical note about the Persian Empire, they were there were two major rivers that provided this area with lots of agriculture and wealth. These were the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. They're very close to each other, and these two rivers make this 
part of the world, this area, very, very fertile, provided with abundant wealth and a large population, even though it is in an otherwise very inhospitable climate. So Khalid wanted to capture the city called Hira, which was just about halfway up the Euphrates River. And so this began Khalid's campaign in Iraq, in which he would pretty much tear through the lower portion of the Persian Empire. The first battle between the Muslims and the Persians was called the Battle of Datusalasil, or the Battle of the Chains. This took place in modern-day Kuwait. Khalid ibn Walid, he first invited the governor of that area to Islam, and the governor responded by bringing out a large army. So Khalid ibn Walid lined his army up and then challenged the governor to a duel, and Khalid ibn Walid promptly beheaded him. The battle took place, and eventually the Muslims were victorious. It was called the Battle of the Chains because the Persians, I guess in the sign of bravery or whatever, they decided to chain themselves up so that they wouldn't flee if things turned sideways, as it happened to be. However, this wound up being their downfall because it made them easy targets for the Muslims. And also, when one soldier went down, they all went down. They were all chained together. And so the two armies, they fought, and the Muslims were successful. And this was Khalid's first victory in Persia. And he moved on up the river to another city called Qarin. Now, the Persians kind of got the idea that Khalid ibn Walid meant business, and so they sent out an even larger force to confront him. And the Muslims fought at the Battle of Qarin, and which was known as the Battle of the River as well. And Khalid ibn Walid's forces, they were much faster and much more mobile, and they got organized much quicker than the Persians, and they struck the Persians while they were still trying to form ranks. In all the confusion, the Muslims were victorious, and Khalid ibn Walid had another notch on his belt. They then moved on up the river to a city called Walaja. Now, just so you understand here, each of these individual cities, they pretty much had to face Khalid ibn Walid on their own. They had very little support from the central Persian government. And this is most likely because there was too much internal strife and problems going on with the government. Remember, the, the ruler at this time was only about 14 years old, okay? And they had just gone through all these terrible upheavals, all these murders and assassinations and everything. The Persians, the Sassanid Empire just didn't have the capability to muster up a good defense against Khalid ibn Walid's attacks. And so each city that he confronted was pretty much on their own. And that contributed to the ease that Khalid ibn Walid had in knocking over so many different towns and, and just racking up this string of victories. So the Battle of Walaja, Khalid ibn Walid, he used the terrain of the area to implement this really clever flanking strategy that he had, or I guess tactic is more appropriate. So the Muslim army, the Persian army lined up to face each other. But unbeknownst to the Persians, there was a mountain ridge behind them and Khalid ibn Walid had sent some of his fastest cavalry behind that ridge the night before. So when the two armies met up and they began to clash, the Persians began to push against the Muslim ranks. 
what the Arabs and the Muslims did instead of trying to fight back, they slowly backed up, creating sort of like a crescent shape around the Persian forces. So the Persians thought they were pushing the Muslims back, but they were actually just drawing themselves into like a cup, a bowl of soldiers surrounding them. And then at Khalid ibn Walid's signal, the cavalry behind the mountain ridge rushed out and then hit the Persians from the back and the Persians were completely surrounded and they were ultimately wiped out. Once again, Khalid ibn, ibn Walid was victorious. Now in these three battles, the Persians had lost hundreds of square miles of territory. They had lost thousands of soldiers and they had also lost some of their best generals. They were really losing quite a bit as this went on. The next battle took place at a city called Ulais. This time, the Persians in that area decided to ally themselves with some Arab Christians who also lived in the area. Khalid ibn Walid attacked them and he killed the Christian chief. And after that, the rest of the Persian and Arab forces, Christian Arab forces fell apart. And once again, Khalid ibn Walid was victorious. And then finally, they reached his first objective, the city of Hira, which was a major Persian city on the Euphrates River. Now, the governor of Hira, Persian governor, he knew the Khalid ibn Walid was approaching, and so he sent out an advance party to try to slow them down, and he had his son leading this advance party. The Persian advance party, they reached the river, dammed off part of the river, and this briefly stranded the Muslim boats in the middle of the river, basically stuck in the bottom muddy part of the river after the Persians had dammed it off. However, Khalid ibn Walid caught them by surprise and attacked this advance party and killed everyone, including the governor's son. When the governor found out and heard that his son was defeated and killed along with the advance party, he fled the city in grief. Khalid ibn Walid and his forces entered Hira with no resistance. However, there were four fortresses within the city that refused to surrender. So the Muslims promptly laid siege to these forces. Not long after that, one of the four fortresses fell to the Muslims and eventually the other four fortresses saw that they were not going to last much longer and they offered to surrender. Khalid ibn Walid gave them their options. Of course, they could accept Islam and Khalid ibn Walid and his, and his soldiers would move on and they can keep everything that was theirs as they were before. If they decided to remain in their religion, which in this city was mostly Christian, they could do that, but they would have to pay the jizya, the subjugation tax, as they were, they were a subjugated people. Or if neither one of those two options were amenable to them, they could continue to fight and, you know, they will see how things turned out with that option. However, the people of Hira decided to submit and chose to pay the jizya to Khalid ibn Walid, well, actually to Abu Bakr. Now, Hira was an old and wealthy city, and this was the Muslims' first glimpse at true wealth, at the wealth and the opulence of the many centuries of Persian rule and grandeur. It's just really hard to imagine these simple Arab tribesmen going into these magnificent and amazing palaces and seeing all of this outlandish and to them perhaps even alien 
expressions of wealth and grandeur. But anyway, most of this stuff was stripped, shipped on back to Medina. Khalid ibn Walid now had the city of Hira, but he decided that he was going to continue on. And then he moved on to the city of Anbar, which was just off the Euphrates River. The city of Anbar would prove to be a little bit more challenging as they had some very strong walls surrounding the city. And then surrounding the walls was this huge moat. The problem, of course, was getting across the moat. But in addition to that, the wall had these little windows where archers could sit in there and pick off anyone trying to cross over the moat. So Khalid ibn Walid had to find a way around that. So he gathered 1,000 of his own archers, lined them up, and told them to target these windows where the other archers were. And so the Persian archers behind the wall, who were supposed to keep anyone from crossing the moat, they were unable to do so as they had to make sure they weren't shot in the face by Khalid ibn Walid's 1,000 archers on the ground. So with Khalid's archers providing cover, Khalid and his soldiers were able to cross over the moat and break through the wall into the city of Anbar. The governor of Anbar, he quickly surrendered the city and fled to the Persian capital of Tesiphon. Once again, Khalid ibn Walid was victorious. The next Persian town on the list was a place named Ainutamr, which translates to the well of the dates, and it was known for its vast and abundant date orchards. The army here, however, facing Khalid ibn Walid, were almost completely Christian Arabs. They were under the Persian dominance, but they were almost completely Christian Arabs. They lined up to fight Khalid ibn Walid, but they were quickly defeated, and Khalid ibn Walid even captured the general after a very brief duel. After conquering Ainotamr, the Muslims discovered that there was a Christian monastery within the city full of young boys who were studying Christianity, studying to become monks. These young boys were all taken captive by the Muslims, and most of them eventually became Muslim themselves. Among this group of young boys from this monastery was a boy named Sirin and another one named Nusair. Sirin will later on become the father of the famous Muslim scholar Ibn Sirin, and Nusair would become the father of the famous Muslim warrior Musa ibn Nusair, who would help in the conquer of Spain. Once again, Khalid ibn Walid was victorious. While Khalid ibn Walid was resting in Ainotamir, trying to nurse his wounds and get his forces back together, he received a distress call from a Muslim commander in another town called Dumatul Jandal, which was not in the Persian Empire, is actually in northern Arabia. Now, this town was like one of the last outposts of the wars of apostasy. It was mostly Christian, but they had allied themselves with the Muslims. But they broke off against Abu, uh, Abu Bakr during the Rutta Wars. Abu Bakr sent a, sent a general down there. If you remember from the last episode, we mentioned how he sent out 11 different generals, 11 different uh, soldiers and leaders that he trusted with their own little army. He sent one out there, but they had been bogged down the whole time. So I called Ibn Walid and the other Sahabas and companions and Muslims were taking care of business down in 
the southern parts of the Arabian Peninsula, this poor man was bogged down and stuck in this one single town up in northern Arabia. And he had been unable to to bring the the town of Damato Jandal back under Abu Bakr's command. But now he heard that Khalid ibn Walid was very close, and so he sent word out to Khalid ibn Walid saying, come on to help me out here. The Rudra wars are not quite over yet. So Khalid ibn Walid, he led a small force, raced down to Damato Jandal, combined forces with the leader that was there, and together they were able to defeat the Christian Arabs at Damato Jandal and brought the city back under Abu Bakr's control. The city of Hira had rebelled against Khalid's governor, so Khalid had to race back over there and put down that rebellion. And then he returned to Ainotamar to continue his march towards the Persian-Byzantine border. The Persians knew now that they were in danger. They were in danger of losing almost all of their territory in the Euphrates River region. So they finally began to start trying to get their act together, and they began gathering this large army from many different parts of their empire. Remember, even though Khalid ibn Walid had captured a whole bunch of territory, the Persian Empire, the Sassanid Empire, was still extremely vast. They had many areas and regions where they could still put together a huge army if they could ever get their their business together. They were just having such a hard time maintaining a government in the first place. They really didn't have the ability to put together a really good defense against Khalid ibn Walid. And on top of that, Khalid ibn Walid and his soldiers were fresh off the battles of Ridda, uh, the battles of the wars of apostasy. They were fresh off that. So they had just got finished fighting. These were well-experienced and trained and battle-hardened soldiers. And so really the Persians really didn't stand a chance in any form of fashion. So Khalid ibn Walid returned to Ain al-Tamr, that's the city with all the dates, uh, the well of dates. He returned to Ain al-Tamr and decided to rest his troops there for a while. In the meantime, he sent two of his lieutenants with large forces to engage the Persians in different parts of the area while they were still trying to put together this huge army. And this is, this is part of the genius of Khalid ibn Walid. His genius was not necessarily in strategy and tactics like, say, Napoleon. Call his genius. His military genius really lay in his speed of action and his boldness. He was just he could just move faster and get to places before the enemy had a chance to even know what was going on. As far as strategy and tactics were concerned, for my reading, he seemed pretty good, but it doesn't seem like he was above and beyond anybody else his real genius lay in able to move fast and just hit the enemy before they even knew what was going on that's where Khalid ibn Walid was a genius military tactician military leader so one of his lieutenants headed for this town called Husayd and they quickly defeated the Persian army there the other headed for a town called Hanafis the Persian general there in this town called Kanafis, he abandoned the city and then left to join with the Persian forces at Musaya, which is further up the river and very, very close to the Persian-Byzantine border. So Khalid ibn Walid was at Ain al-Tamr, the well of dates. The Persians were starting to put together a large force further up the river at this town called Musaya. 
in between Khalid ibn Walid at Ain al-Tamr and the Persians at Muzayyah were two smaller towns called Sani and Zumail. These Persian forces there, they most likely would be willing to defend their city, but because they were so small, it was unlikely they would come out to actually fight Khalid ibn Walid one-on-one. So now Khalid ibn Walid had himself a decision to make. In addition to these other two options, the Persian capital of Tesiphon was in clear shot. There was nothing, there were no more threats, there were no more obstacles between Khalid ibn Walid and Anu Tamar and the Persian capital of Tesiphon. If Khalid ibn Walid wanted to, he could gather his army and march on the Persian capital of Tesiphon. So now he had to make a decision. Should he go ahead and attack the Persian capital of Tesiphon or should he go and try to take on these two small cities, uh, Sani and Zumail, or should he go ahead and try to take on these large forces at Musaya that the Persians were gathering over there? Since Abu Bakr hadn't given Khalid ibn Walid permission to attack the Persian capital of Tesiphon, Khalid was reluctant to do that unilaterally, unilaterally and on his own without permission from his leader. So he decided against that one. And these two smaller towns, Sani and Zumel, they were weak and they could be dealt with later. There's no real rush to go get them right now. So instead, Khalid ibn Walid decided it was most prudent to attack Muzaya and deal with the, with a large gathering of Persian forces there. So after resting up at Ain al-Tamr, Khalid ibn Walid left from the city, leading a large force and not too long after that, his two lieutenants in those recently captured cities of Hanafis and Hussein, they also left with their forces and eventually all three armies combined just outside of Musaya. And this is where we once again get to see Khalid ibn Walid's genius. The Persian forces at Musaya, they thought it would take Khalid ibn Walid much longer to reach Musaya than it actually took him. He not only took him and his own army, his two generals, his two lieutenants, they brought their armies as well, and they all converged on Musaya much quicker than the Persians expected. And so when they all, when Khalid ibn Walid's three combined armies converged on Musaya, it was at nighttime and they attacked almost immediately. The Persians were completely unprepared for it. Despite the large forces, despite all the, the preparations they had made up to that point, they were not expecting Khalid ibn Walid there once again. That was the man's genius. He was just faster than everybody else. So Khalid ibn Walid attacked at night and by the morning time, the Persian forces had been completely wiped out. And once again, Khalid ibn Walid was victorious. Now, there were some Muslims who lived among the Persians in Musaya. And during this battle, they had been killed in the fighting. Now, some say that it was because of the confusion and that it was dark and, you know, the Muslim soldiers, the Khalid ibn Walid soldiers, they didn't know who they're fighting. They just just you, there's like you're not on my side, so you must be an enemy. They were just attacking. Others say that these Muslim Persians, or maybe Persian Muslims, perhaps that's a better phrase, they were forced to fight against the Muslims, so the Khalid ibn Walid's forces, even though he, they didn't really want to. Either case, they wound up being killed in this battle. When word got back to Medina about what had happened, 
Omar, of course, Omar ibn Khattab, he heard about it. Now, if you don't remember, hopefully you do. But in the last episode of this podcast, we spoke about some of the other questionable things that Khalid ibn Walid had done. When Omar heard about this, he was extremely upset and he pressured Abu Bakr to relieve Khalid ibn Walid of his of his duties. But Abu Bakr refused to do so in saying that, well, you know, these guys lived among the non-Muslims. They put themselves in this danger. But despite that, Abu Bakr did agree to pay money, blood money, to the families of those Muslims who were killed during that during that uh, battle of Musayah. So now Khalid ibn Walid, he controlled this huge swath of Persian territory. He went back and captured those two, those two smaller towns of Sani and Zumel, and now he could put his focus, his complete attention on the final Persian city between him and the Roman territory, the city called Firaz. This was the last Persian city on the Euphrates River before entering into Roman territory. So in the last week of Ramadan, in the year 633 CE, Khalid ibn Walid gathered his army and marched to the city of Firaz. Meanwhile, inside the city of Firaz itself, the Byzantines, the Romans, had sent several troops into Firaz to support the Persians. They also realized that these guys are going to be a bit of a threat if they conquered the city of Firaz. So it was the Persians and the Byzantines, as well as some of their allied Christian Arab tribes. All of these were allied and lined up against the Muslims. However, the two sides were separated by the Euphrates River. And so Khalid ibn Walid and his forces set up camp on one side, while the Persians and their allies were set up on the other side of the river. And for six weeks, there was no action whatsoever. However, eventually some of the Persians got kind of antsy and they decided to cross the river and attack Khalid ibn Walid. When they did this, when they attacked his forces, he took this as an opportunity to open up hostilities and the battle was on. The Muslims, however, despite all the Persian and Byzantine preparation, despite all the allies, the Muslims quickly defeated the Persians and the Byzantines, and they conquered this last Persian city on the Euphrates. And this would now bring an end to Khalid ibn Walid's campaign in Persia. His next stop would be into Byzantine territory. Okay, now don't be under the impression that the Muslims just decided to invade Syria because it was there for the taking. There was already a lot of friction between these two groups anyway, between the Muslims and the Romans anyway. Remember, as we mentioned, Prophet Muhammad has sent off uh, uh, Usama ibn Zayd with an army to attack them and to fight some of their affiliated Arab tribes just barely a year before this. So really, it was almost inevitable that these two forces, these two groups would wind up fighting each other. Furthermore, the Muslims had taken Persian territory right up to the Roman border, right up to the Roman territory. And so there's already a lot of friction between the Muslim Arabs and several of the local Arab Christians because of all this campaigning. And remember, several of the Christian Arabs had allied with the Persians against the Muslims. But 
their Christian Arab brothers who had been affiliated with the Romans, with the Byzantines, they were not too happy about this either. So with all of this friction and fighting and arguing going on, eventually violence just broke out and some of the Muslim forces fought against some of the local Christian Arab forces and the Muslims were victorious. However, the Christian forces that they defeated, they were clients of the Roman Empire. And so this prompted Emperor Heraclius, who was still in charge, this prompted him to put together this massive army to defend Syria and also to recover some of this territory that had been lost during the Persian campaign and also to retaliate for the fighting between the Muslim Arabs and the Christian Arabs who were allied with the Byzantines. So seeing that the Romans were putting together this huge force, Abu Bakr began to get his forces ready as well. He sent out four separate armies from Medina, each with each of them with their own commander, and they converged on the city of Tabuk. There they were ordered to stay close with each other, but leave and travel along different routes. Now, let's just talk about some of these commanders. The com- the commanders Abu Bakr had put in charge of these four armies were pretty famous people. If you're a fan of Islamic history, some of these names will probably sound familiar to you. Most important of all, the most famous of all, I would say, would be Amr ibn al-As. Amr ibn al-As, he was... His story goes all the way back to the prophet's time in Mecca. But at this time, during the the prophet's time in Mecca, Amr ibn As was actually an enemy of the Muslims. In fact, during the Muslim time in Mecca, before the Hijrah to Medina, before the migration to Medina, the Muslims were, of course, being very much oppressed in Mecca. Some of them couldn't bear the oppression and the, the persecution, and they decided to migrate to Ethiopia at that time is called Abyssinia, where there was a kind Christian king who ruled the area. When the Quraysh found out that several of their Muslim brethren had migrated to Abyssinia, they sent their most eloquent and most well-versed diplomat, Ahmed ibn al-As, to Abyssinia to request that the Abyssinian king turn these Muslims over to them and bring them back to Mecca. So Ahmed ibn As, he, he knew the king personally. He knew the, uh, the, uh, the Abyssinian king. His title was An-Najashi. He knew him personally. And Ahmed ibn As was also an accomplished diplomat. He was a good salesman and he knew how to talk the talk of the high class, so to speak. So he brought lots of gifts over there and tried to convince the Abyssinian king to turn the Muslims, to return the Muslims back to Mecca. But after hearing both sides of the story, An-Najashi, the, the Abyssinian king, refused to do so and sent Ahmed ibn As back to Mecca empty handed. Ultimately, though, a little bit after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, Ahmad ibn al-As converted to Islam and joined the Muslims. In fact, he came, he converted to Islam the same time that Khalid ibn Walid did. So Ahmad ibn al-As was one of the commanders of these four armies. Another one of the commanders was a man named Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan. Now, you may not recognize the name of Yazid, but I'm pretty sure you recognize the name of Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan was, of course, the primary leader after Abu Jahal of the Quraysh 
the pagan Quraysh, and he led several battles against the Muslims. Eventually, however, he accepted Islam after the conquest of Mecca, and this was one of his sons, now Yazid, who would be in charge of one of the armies sent out by Abu Bakr. In addition to that, Yazid was also the brother of Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan, who would be a future caliph long time after Abu Bakr. We're not quite there yet. Another one of the commanders was a man named Shurah bin Ibn Hasana. And if you remember that name, you may or may not. But if you don't remember, he was sent by Abu Bakr to Yamama during the uh, wars of Ridda, the wars of apostasy, to watch over Musaylam al-Kadhab, but he had been given orders not to attack. However, Shurah bin Ibn Hasana got kind of antsy, he got impatient, and he attacked Musaylam al-Kadhab, and Musaylam al-Kadhab promptly beat him and sent him running back to Medina. But evidently, Abu Bakr decided to give him a second chance here. And the final leader, a final commander of these armies was a man named, a companion actually named Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Now that name should sound familiar to you, but if you're not sure where you heard him from, where you heard his name at, he was one of the 10 companions promised paradise. He was actually the ninth person, the ninth person to accept Islam. He accepted Islam before Omar ibn al-Khattab. That's kind of amazing there. You can hear more about his story at uh, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash companions, where I discuss most of the 10 companions with the exception of the four caliphs in greater depth. And he has he has a quite an interesting story. So these four men led four different armies out from Tabuk and they left one day apart from each other. But they were ordered to stay fairly close so that communications between them would be much easier. And keep in mind, there was no standing army at this time. When Abu Bakr had to raise an army, he would make a call out to the local tribes who were affiliated and under his command. However, those tribes who have rebelled against him, who were part of the Murtadin, the apostates, they were not allowed to participate in these battles at all. Abu Bakr would not allow them to join his army. Eventually, however, Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan's army, he was the first one to reach Syria. And they fought a few skirmishes with some of the local Arab tribes there. But eventually they were victorious and they finally made camp in one of the Byzantine or Roman cities called Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia in what is now modern day Jordan. In fact, that city Philadelphia will later on become the city we know of as Amman, which is the capital of Jordan. Okay, so let's take a break from all of this talk of fighting and violence and leave Syria for a moment and talk about some domestic matters that are going on in the Muslim world at this time. For the first six months of Abu Bakr's rule as a caliph, Ali refused to give him the bay'ah. This was mostly because, almost entirely because, after Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, if you remembered from the first episode of the second season, during this period of time, Ali was busy with preparing the burial of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. While he was doing that, the rest of the Muslim men were busy trying to decide who would be the next leader. Eventually, Abu Bakr was chosen. And Ali comes back from burying the Prophet to find out that a new leader had been chosen completely without 
his input or his advice or without even being considered for anything. And he was very upset about this, considering the fact he was a prophet's closest male relative. He was married to the prophet's daughter. He was father of the prophet's grandchildren. He was related to the prophet by blood. He had been with the prophet since the very beginning. In some say he may have had even accepted Islam before Abu Bakr. I mean, he, he kind of had a reason to be upset that they had took such a very important decision without considering him whatsoever. But however, in Abu Bakr's defense, he didn't mean to do it that way. Things just got caught up. People were talking and thinking, next thing you know, Omar's grabbing his hand and somebody else is grabbing his hand. Next thing you know, he's made the caliph. So Abu Bakr didn't set out to 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 have things be this way. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode and 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 see how things took place. Abu Bakr just heard that some of the uh Ansars were talking about, you know, breaking off and setting up their own little little rule. He went over to Omar to try to settle things down and one thing led to another. Next thing you know, he's the ruler of the Muslim world. It, it just he didn't plan for it to be that way. Whatever. The point is that Ali refused to give him bayah because of that. In addition to that little piece of problem between them, there's another issue. Fatima, the prophet's daughter, she insisted that Prophet Muhammad had left her an orchard as part of her inheritance. However, Abu Bakr insisted that he heard from the Prophet Muhammad that the prophets, the messengers of Allah, do not leave inheritance for their families. And Abu Bakr refused to hand it over to her, not because he didn't like her, but because he felt he was following one of the prophet's commandments. Fatima obviously disagreed with him and her husband was Ali and they, he already had problems with him because of he was chosen caliph. So for the first six months, Abu Bakr's rule, Ali and Fatima kept their distance and there was very little discussion between these two groups. However, Fatima wound up dying just six months after the Prophet after her father, and with her death, the two decided, the two remaining members, Ali and Abu Bakr, decided to make amends, and they discussed things, and they worked things out, and Ali explained his reason for not giving bayah, uh, how he was upset, and Abu Bakr explained that, once again, he didn't really plan for things to turn out that way, they just did, and ultimately, the two men made up and Ali did give bayah to Abu Bakr. And Ali would also go on to become a trusted advisor of Omar ibn al-Khattab as well. So just wanted to clarify that little bit of news. One other thing I want to talk about, well, there's two more things I want to talk about before we wrap up. I want to talk about the Muslim economy at this time. So obviously, the Muslims are fighting lots of wars and wars take money. And also, Abu Bakr has a, a, basically a growing empire to run. Where was he getting the money for all of this? What was going on? Well, before we get into how he did this, how he's able to do this, let's talk about some of the econ economic factors that led up to this point. And I understand you might really want to hear about the fighting and the and the swashbuckling and the violence and the killing, but you know, there's more to our history as Muslims besides just fighting, okay? There's a lot more to it than that. And history involves many things. And one of the most important things about history is actually money, all right? Really, most wars, I'm not saying these did, but most wars happen either because of money or they are won or lost because of money. Remember, 
if Abu Bakr hadn't gotten that influx of wealth after Osama ibn Zayd had been victorious in Syria, we don't know if he would have been able to successfully put up a good fight against the rebels during the wars of apostasy. So understanding the economy of this time is very important to really truthfully understanding history. Now, first, during the prophet's time, almost all business was conducted through barter, people trading one good for another. There were coins. Coins did exist, but it didn't, these were mostly coins that filtered into the Arab lands from other territories, most likely Rome and Persia. But the Arabs themselves, they didn't have any mint. They didn't mint coins and stuff like that. They conducted most of their business through barter. Of course, gold and silver was still valuable to them, but more valuable to them was things that they could eat. Eating was more important than anything else. And so things like dates and raisins and milk and camels and things that you can eat, those were the things that are most important to them, more so than what we would consider money like gold and silver right now. In fact, the first evidence of true minted coins in the Muslim world wouldn't come until the Caliph of Uthman ibn Affan. That was almost 15 years after the Prophet's death. So it is most likely that even during Abu Bakr's time, most of the business within the Muslim empire was done through barter as well. And of course, people may have still accepted whatever coins that came in through their interaction with the Persians and the Romans. But things were beginning to change. While it may have been okay within the, the small Arab tribes to do trading with a handful of dates here and a camel there and a cup of milk here, that stuff wasn't happening with the Persians and the Romans. They didn't want your dates. They wanted gold and silver. They wanted money. And so things were beginning to change in the Muslim world. And barter, barter the system of barter was really starting to fade out. And people were moving more and more towards coins. Now, the coin because the Muslims didn't have their own mint yet, they had to start minting their own coins. They still had to rely on Persian or Roman coins, which were generally made of some form of gold and silver, maybe not pure gold or silver, but they had some gold and silver mixed up with it. And it is truly from these two nations that you get these two groups of people, the Persians and the Romans, that you really get the phrases dinar and dirham. So suffice it to say, using dates and food as money was really starting to wear out. The, the Muslims were finding that more and more difficult to do, especially with people outside of the Arabian Peninsula. And even today, you have some groups, Muslim groups, who insist that zakah or certain forms of charity must be done in food because at the Prophet's time, it was done with food also. Furthermore, there are hadith that stipulate that the zakat should be done with this amount of weed or this amount of dates or this number of camels, so forth and so on. And so there are people today who insist, Muslims today who insist that zakat should be given in, uh, in, in food, some sort of staple food rather than money. However, 
that overlooks the important thing, the important fact that the reason why that was stipulated in the prophet's time was because that's what people mostly used. They bartered with food. They didn't. They had money. Yes, money existed. Coins did exist in the in the Muslim world in the prophet's time, but these were not Muslim minted coins. These coins not minted and produced by the prophets of Islam. They filtered into the Muslim world through the outside nations. So is. It's important to understand, I don't want to get into the whole legalistic and religious dogmatic parts of it all, but I just want you to understand that during the prophet's time, they were mostly a barter society. That's something we really have to understand. During Prophet Muhammad's time, he had also established what was known as the Beitul Mal, which technically, or well, literally means the house of money, but technically it more or less refers to the Muslim treasury. This was established in the prophet's time, but it was not very structured. It was just a, basically a storehouse of mostly dates, mostly foods that were not easily perishable, things like dried dates and grain, things that could last a, a good about a good amount of time. And when people came to the prophet, so I'm asking for stuff, asking for uh, sadaqah or zakat or whatever, he would often give them from the Beitul Mal from the treasury and usually it's often dates or some sort of food though however there were instances when people were given money as well so don't want you to think it was all one thing or the other but for the most part business was done as barter at that time now the sources of the Muslim wealth primarily during Abu Bakr's time were from three different areas the first and most important source of Muslim wealth was from the Zakat and this is important to understand because in today's world, we see the zakat as a purely spiritual thing. And yes, of course, there is a religious and spiritual reasoning behind it. It is a purification of our wealth. In fact, that's where zakat comes from. The word zakaya in Arabic means to purify something. And zakat is a purification of our wealth. So there is a spiritual element behind it. That is true for certain. However, the zakat is also a tax. <laughs> okay, It is a, a, a religiously mandated tax. Okay, It is an income tax at that because it's based upon how much money. It's a percentage of how much money or how much wealth you have at a specific time. So... Let's understand that it has a spiritual reasoning, but also has a very practical reasoning. Okay, the Muslim government will not run without some sort of revenue. No government, for that matter, will run without some sort of revenue. There must be taxes. Zakat was a form of this tax. And the Quran had already established how this money should be distributed. The Quran lays it out very, very clearly, says very clearly who should be the recipients of the zakat. But a portion of the zakat goes back to Allah and his messenger. Let me be clear here. When you hear the phrase Allah and his messenger in this context, that means the central government. Okay? That means the central government. So keep that in mind, all right? Just keep that in mind. All right, so that was... The primary source of the Mus of the Muslim empire's wealth, primarily through zakat. The second source of their wealth was from the jizya. And the jizya is a controversial term now, with people throwing it about, saying all sorts of crazy things. But the jizya is really essentially a tax on people who are not Muslim. It was done in a way of subjugation, of course, but it was also 
a means of of extracting wealth from these people who were subjects of the Muslim government. Keep in mind, the zakat is a, even though I, I, I put a lot of emphasis on how much of a tax it was and how practical it is, there is still a, a spiritual component to it. And for that reason, it would not be right to force people who are not Muslim to pay that zakat. However, if you have millions of people living in your territory who just don't happen to be Muslim and you still got to take care of all of them and protect them and provide uh, public services to them, you know, you're not going to be able to do that without money. And so Jizya was imposed on non-Muslim conquered people. There's different legal things about how high and how low it should be. The point of the matter is that the jizya was a second primary source of income for the Muslim empire. This was a tax similar to zakat, but it was a tax imposed upon those who were not Muslim. The third source of Muslim wealth was through straight conquest. Yes, Muslims would conquer land and conquer wealth and conquer stuff and they would ship it back to Medina. Medina, They would conquer a palace, strip everything of value, ship it back to Medina for Abu Bakr to, to decide what to do with it. That may sound kind of crude, but quite frankly, that was another primary source of income for the growing Muslim empire. And then the final aspect, the final primary source of wealth was through the Kharaj, which is kind of like a land tax. This is something that was most likely inherited from the Persians and the Romans. All empires that I've ever heard of impose some sort of tax on their subjects, no matter how democratic they are, no matter how Republican they are, no matter how progressive or conservative or tyrannical or lean, no matter what, every single government I've ever heard of taxes its subjects. <laughs> That's just the way things are. Okay? And this thing wasn't any different in the Rome and Persians. So when the Muslims conquered these territories from the Persians, they realized, they learned that the Persians who they conquered had been paying a certain amount of tax to back to the government, back to the capital city. Now, this tax was usually a percentage based upon the number of acres any certain person owned and controlled. When the Muslims came into these territories, they pretty much just adopted the same thing. So instead of you paying it over to the Persian emperor, you're going to pay it to Medina. And so the responsibility was, this is also the same thing for Zakat, as well as the Jizya, as well as all the other taxes. The Muslims didn't send out forms and 1099s to people and 1040s to tell you to fill this out and send it and ship it into me. They didn't do that kind of stuff. They didn't go knocking on doors either and making everybody pay their tax. They didn't do that kind of stuff either. It was the responsibility of the local leader, whether it was a chief or king or whatever, whoever the local leader was. It was his responsibility to gather up the zakat or the jizya or whatever, the kharaj, whatever the case may be, gather up those funds and send it back to Medina. The kharaj, this land tax that was imposed by the Romans and Persians before the Muslims and adopted by the Muslims as well, is not necessarily mandated in the Quran. Just got to gotta lay it out. It's not in the Quran and I don't, know about it in the hadith either i really do believe the muslims just adopted this from the previously established governments now initially when the muslims conquered these areas particularly in persia 
their land tax was much, much, much lower than the Persians government before them. However, unfortunately, as the Muslim empire became more wealthy and much more vast and more lavish and more corrupt and the leaders or the Muslim caliphs were further and further away from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as far as distance was concerned, this land tax increased and increased and increased until eventually they were just as oppressive as the Persians before them. Furthermore, the Muslim or the Islamic economic system of relying on zakat and jizya and conquered lands that was great when most of the conquered people were not muslim and also when the leaders were simple men like abu bakr and omar who lived simple lives and didn't have to live in humongous gigantic mansions and palaces and stuff like that when the leaders were simple the Muslim empire could function very well on this very simple system and having very low rates of uh, zakat and jizya. However, over the generations, as these conquered people eventually accepted Islam, maybe not the, well, their descendants would eventually accept Islam, the concept of jizya was no longer needed because they were Muslim now. And so the amount of money you're getting from Jizya might be a whole lot in the beginning when the conquered people are pretty much all non-Muslim. But over after a couple of generations, that becomes very, very difficult. And they're Muslim now and they feel as if I'm going to pay Zakat and Jizya. What is this? And that will lead to lots of problems in the Muslim world later on down the road. And we're going to get to that, inshallah. But for right now, just understand that this system works well when the leaders had simple lives, when the leaders were religious and honest and righteous men and had simple lives and didn't require to have the craziness that will come later. But once the Muslim government became corrupt, these systems of Islamic economics were also made corrupt. And one last note about the wealth that was acquired through conquest Keep in mind that at this time, with the army being mostly a volunteer army, Abu Bakr pretty much raised it by making a call to the different tribes. At that point in time, as the Quran mandates, it was easy to have four-fifths of the wealth and the booty and all that distributed amongst the soldiers and one-fifth go back to Medina. However, this system was pretty much ended during Omar ibn Khattab's reign when he established a standing army and there was no longer this volunteer stuff that they had during Abu Bakr's time. Finally, let's talk about Islamic scholarship before wrapping up. Now, most of the Sahabas, the companions of Prophet Muhammad, they were still alive. However, many of them had been killed during the wars of Ridda and especially the battle in Yamama against Musaylam al-Kadhab, Musaylam the liar. Many of those actually killed in Yamama were actually Hufad, or people who had memorized Quran. Hufad is the plural of Hafid, a person who has memorized Quran. When word got back to Medina uh, that so many people who had memorized the Quran were killed during this battle, Omar began to pressure Abu Bakr to compile the Quran into one book because Omar was afraid that if people only had it in their memory 
and these people died, then the Quran would die with them. Now, at first, Abu Bakr, he was very hesitant to do something like this because Prophet Muhammad didn't do it and he hadn't ordered anybody to do it. But eventually, he began to see the wisdom in Omar's suggestions and also he realized that Allah refers to the Quran as a book often in the Quran. So, Eventually, Abu Bakr agreed with Omar, and Abu Bakr appointed a companion of Prophet Muhammad, so a young man named Zayd ibn Thabit. He was appointed to compile the Quran into one text. Now, this Zayd ibn Thabit, not to be confused with Zayd ibn Haritha, the Prophet's adopted son, Zayd ibn Thabit was one of the Ansars, and he had also been the Prophet's personal scribe. And just one quick story about Zayd. When he was a young boy, he was roughly about 13 years old during the Battle of Badr. And he asked the Prophet ﷺ to participate in that battle. But the Prophet denied him and basically saying that he was too young. But a few years later, he would be old enough and Zayd ibn Thabit participated in several battles after that. Very often, the Prophet ﷺ would have... um. Zayd ibn Thabit write letters to different people in the area, write letters for the Prophet. He's also instruct him to write down the verses of the Quran. So because the Prophet ﷺ had trusted Zayd ibn Thabit with writing down the verses of the Quran, Abu Bakr knew that this would be the perfect person to trust with such an important duty. Zayd began the collection of the various verses of the Quran by visiting the many people in the Muslim empire at that time who had these different verses. And Zayd, when he would later on describe his feeling of having to uh, take on such a, such a heavy responsibility, he would say that carrying a mountain would have been a lighter burden than trying to gather all this, all of this information, not in the difficulty, but in the importance of it, because it's such an important thing. He was compiling the word of Allah for ever. <laughs> okay. He was compiling it for all history. So the, this is going to be something that was very, very important. And he could just feel the weight of the responsibility that that entailed. So Zayd ibn Thabit, he had to go to the different companions and different people who have different versions of the Quran. And it is important to know that there were different versions of the Quran floating around at the time. And I'm going to explain that very soon. But basically, what he would have, he would visit a person, find out what they knew, but he would not accept what they had memorized or what they had written down because everyone, everything had not been memorized. There are many people who wrote the Quran down on, on slabs of rock, on large flat pieces of animal bone on palm leaves and on many other different things, but many of them had also memorized it. But Zayd ibn Thabit would not accept any verse unless he was able to find two companions who could verify that they heard that verse from Prophet Muhammad as well. Eventually, however, Zayd was able to compile the entire Quran that we have today and he presented it to Abu Bakr. It was all written down on palm leaves at the time. He presented the finished Quran to Abu Bakr, who then turned it over to Hafsa ibn Omar, Omar's daughter, who was also, who was also a wife of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this final version would be the basis that 
Uthman ibn Affan would several years later base the final compilation of the Quran on, the Quran that we have today. The Quran that we have today is pretty much based on Uthman's compilation, and Uthman's compilation is based on this compilation by Zayd ibn Thabit. And we'll discuss it later on when we talk about Uthman's uh, caliphate. So that will hopefully clarify things a little bit more for you. But at this point in time, this was, as far as we know, the only complete compilation, complete codex of the Quran now rested in the wife of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who is also the daughter of Omar ibn Khattab. Both before and after Abu Bakr's caliphate, there were many versions of the Quran floating around. And this is mostly uh, by people who had certain portions of the Quran that they had gathered during their interaction with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's not that they had different words, they just didn't have the complete message. I hope I make that clear there. Okay, so there were probably some abrogated verses between the difference between the different people, but for the most part it was just that the different versions were not necessarily different, just incomplete and incomplete in different ways. What Zay did was gather all of these different versions all together and compiled them into one text and then verified that they were all correct with different companions, making sure that what we have today is the most authentic, complete compilation of the Quran. And I do have to um, bring this note up that there are many Shiites, the Shia, who say that Ali ibn Abi Talib also had a fully complete version of the Quran and he tried to present it to the people, but it was rejected. Now, there are no reports that I'm aware of that confirm that story. And furthermore, there are some Shiites who actually don't believe that story either. So, but I thought it would at least be fair to let you know that there are some slightly alternate versions of Islamic history when it comes to the compilation of the Quran. And one last thing before we wrap up is that we should understand that there were no madhahib at this time. A madhahib is the plural of madhab. There's no madhab, no schools of thought at this time. Abu Bakr was the political authority of the Muslim empire, the Muslim world, but he did not take on the responsibility as the ultimate religious authority. And that's something to really understand there. He was very reluctant to sincerely or absolutely establish religious edicts. He was just very reluctant to go anywhere outside of what he knew came from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was very reluctant to do this sort of thing on his own. Omar ibn Khattab, on the other hand, when he becomes caliph, he was very much ready to go outside of the prophet's uh, direct commandments. For instance, one, one thing that Omar did that Abu Bakr would never do was establish a standing army. I would just have to say that Omar, to me, seems a much more practical leader than Abu Bakr was. But what Abu Bakr was, was needed for his time. 
because the Muslim empire was just getting off the ground. It was really just a coalition of various Arab tribes. So that loose form of government was needed at that time. But by the time Omar ibn Khattab took over, things were starting to become much more bureaucratic, much more formal, and a much more structured system was required. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So let's bring it back right now. Just understand that there was no established school of thought. And Abu Bakr did not like passing religious religious edicts outside of what directly came from Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he would often rely on his own advisors and the other Sahabas for guidance on many different things. He did not like acting unilaterally. Where he mentioned two of his closest advisors were Ali and Omar ibn Khattab, two of his closest advisors. There were others as well. So most of the Sahabas, as we mentioned, were still alive, and so. People didn't really need things like um, uh, schools of thoughts and imams like we have right now and sheikhs and stuff like that. They didn't really need that. You had a question, you either go back into your memory bank and try to remember what the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said about it if you happen to be a, a companion. If not, then you can go find the companion and ask him what they thought about it and okay, what they knew about it. So people didn't need the schools of thought that we have right now. It was just not a necessary function. It, it it just wasn't there. It just wasn't part of Islamic life at that time. Islamic law was just beginning to be formulated and things were still very, very much informal. Of course, things would change as the Muslim world got bigger and life got more complicated. In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss Khalid's adventures into Syria and fighting against the Byzantines. Then we will also discuss his eventual downfall. That will all come up on the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope that you found that beneficial and useful. This was a little bit long in coming, and so I felt necessary to make this episode a little bit longer than my usual one hour shot so hopefully inshallah you do not mind it being this long i had actually intended to discuss the full campaign of syria in this episode but that would have really been too long and plus i really wanted to discuss some other aspects of muslim history at this time besides just the fighting we'll talk about the economy and islamic scholarship and hopefully you find that part interesting gives you a more complete picture of the muslim world at this time now the next episode inshallah we will cover syria more in depth we will hopefully be able to cover abu Bakr's death as well and the rise of omar ibn al-qatab now keep in mind things are going to get a little violent with some of these episodes but there is a lot of warfare going on and like it or not warfare is violent so just bear with me on some of these things i want you to understand however that these conquered people and the muslims going to do quite a bit of conquering over the next couple of episodes these people weren't forced to accept islam but as you, as you mentioned in the episode they were forced to pay the tribute which is also known as the jizya most of these areas that had been conquered by Khalid ibn walid they were 
previously conquered by the Persians, okay? So many Christian Arabs who came under the Muslim authority, they did not necessarily like the Persian taxes either, and they were actually happy that the Muslims came in and conquered them away from the Persians. As there was some fighting between the Muslims and Christians, but there were also many Christians who were happy and relieved that the Muslims conquered these areas. It would take several generations for these areas to become to become fully Muslim. And even today, you will find there are still many pockets of, Christ, of Christianity, of Christians inside of modern-day Persia, which is really Iran, and Iraq too, for that matter. There's still many Christians who live there because they were never persecuted and forced to accept Islam. Simple as that. These are people who can trace their Christian heritage. These Arabs and Persians who can trace their Christian heritage to before Columbus even discovered America. That's that's. Goes back quite a bit of time there. Now, one thing I can't ignore is that the the downloads uh, have not really been available. The show has been kind of slow in coming along, and I understand that you probably waited well over a month for this episode. And once again, I apologize, but what can I say? I have to work, and I work <laughs> I work forty hours a week, five days a week. Really, I work seven days a week because I teach on Saturdays and Sundays as well. And I just don't have that much time on my hands to do this. Even doing this episode has taken up most of my Saturday to do this. So please just, I am absolutely committed to this podcast. I want to, I love doing this podcast. It's not about money really at all. I just like doing the podcast and I, I love talking about Islamic history. So please just bear with me. Understand that I'm not giving up on it whatsoever. I want to do it. It's just a matter of time right now. I am grateful for having such a great job. It pays me pretty well. I don't have to rely on the podcast for money, but there's give and take. And so with me having this job that does help me take care of my family, for better or for worse, takes away from my ability to produce this podcast as consistently as I would like. So I ask that you please forgive me and understand that I'm constantly trying to find ways of bringing this to you in a better and more reliable fashion, but we have to deal with what we have to deal with. Quite frankly, this is this situation is much better for me now than when it was when I, I, I wasn't employed and I couldn't do the podcast all the time. Um, I, I, it may not be good to you, but I'm sure you understand that it is much better for me having a decent stream of income and doing the podcast on the side. So I thank you for your patience and your kindness. And I I ask Allah for his forgiveness if I've done anything wrong or if I've you know neglected anything in pursuing my career goals. But my my goal is to continue this podcast and teach you as much about Islamic history as I most possibly can, inshallah. If you have not been complete, completely turned off by my lack of consistency with the podcast, if you would like to help, the best way to help is to subscribe to the podcast. Yes, that is the best way to help. If you go to iTunes and subscribe, no matter how you listen to the podcast, whether you listen to it uh, through your computer or through your phone or whatever, the best thing for you to do, subscribe in iTunes. Even if you don't listen on an iPhone device, the best thing to help the podcast grow is to subscribe on iTunes. You can listen to it any way you want to. I don't care. But subscribe on iTunes. I like the ratings and the reviews. If you want to do that too, that's fine. 
subscribe on iTunes. I can't say anything better than that. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. If you want the show notes for this episode, please go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Persia. We get the show notes, all the links to all the stuff we mentioned during the podcast, inshallah. I hope I will be able to bring you in the next episode fairly quickly. I haven't even begun the research on the next episode. So, oh Lord of mercy, just pray for me, folks. Pray for me. And uh, as some of you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Mets fan and we didn't do so well in the World Series. It was a great run. I'm a, I am was a little bit bummed out about that, but you know, it's just sports. It's not life and death. But you know, it's a little rough not having the Mets as the world champions, but hopefully they'll be back next year. But um, sigh of condolences for my beloved team. Anyway, that's enough of that. We're going to ride out now with the group Native Dean and their famous song, not afraid to stand alone. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I am not afraid to stand alone. I am not afraid to stand alone. If a lies by my side, I am not afraid to stand alone. Everything will be alright. I am not afraid to stand alone. Gonna keep my head up high. Muslim, started praying and wearing a headscarf. It was a healing for her heart, struggling with no one to lean on. But with prayer she would be strong, had a job and then she was laid off. Got a better education and it paid off. She was called to a job that she dreamed of. Close by great pay, she was in love. They brought her in, told her she's the number one pick. You got the job, but you gotta lose the outfit. It's a tough position that you put me in, cause I've been struggling with my two children. But I continue looking for a job again. My faith in my religion, I would never been. I got a
ain't afraid to stand alone. I am not afraid to stand alone. I am not afraid to stand alone. If I lost my desire, I am not afraid to stand alone. Everything will be alright. I am not afraid to stand alone. Gonna keep my head up high. I'm not afraid to stand alone. If I lost my desire, everything will be alright. Gonna keep my head up high. Bye. Uh-huh.